And we're back. It's another episode of the Dice of Screaming podcast. Oh, oh yeah. There's something to howl about because it's Spooktober. Ow. That's right. It's that time of year. The bridge <laughs> is washed out and you'll have to stay the night. <laughs> yes. Welcome to my castle. Oh, no, it is Spooktober. Spooky fun for one and all. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. One, two, three stupid jokes. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to be hitting a whole lot of horror themes, uh, and just not the typical ones you'd think. So we've got some good topic lined up for tonight. Hope you stick around for that. And we've got some call-ins from our past shows, so we're just going to jump right into those. We're going to start in this house is Jason from Nerd RPG Variety Cast coming at us with some call-in. Take it away, Jason. Hey, guys. Jason, Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Just want to clarify... Cody M's No Save For You podcast. It's not an actual play podcast. We play online, but using a virtual tabletop. Roll 20. I think the virtual tabletops are actually what's helping taking the place of the MMOs for a lot of people because it's allowing that online gaming, but it allows you the free wheeling gaming of a tabletop group. And it works for people that, you know, can't find local groups. There was a Call of Cthulhu app game that was licensed in the, about a decade ago or eight years ago. The Wasted Land or something like that. It was set during World War One. It opened up on, um, you know, in, in trench warfare. I had it on an iPhone 4. But, so there, there have been some attempts at that. And the last thing I want to say is I appreciate your coverage of this area. I, you know, I had a, a decade off of gaming. I gamed in high school, knew where the local game shop was. When I was at Fort Ord, I knew where the local game shop was. We closed Fort Ord in 93, went to Fort Lewis, Washington. I knew where the game shop was. But when I went over to Fort Bragg in North Carolina in the 82nd in 97, from 97, the whole time I was in North Carolina, so from 97 to 2006, um, I was out of gaming. So I was no visibility of any of that during that time. When I got up in Virginia, took a job, I'd been out of the Army by then, you know, I found local game shops in Northern Virginia, and we started finding local groups and doing tabletop gaming again. But, yeah, so that whole period, time period you talked about, I had a dead spot myself, so I appreciate your covering it. Talk to you later. All right, well, thanks for the call in, Jason. Sorry about the uh, mix-up there. Yeah, no safe for you is a, uh, a t- uh, virtual tabletop, so, yeah, sorry about that. But, hey, you know, this day and age, you never know, so... Uh, but good on you for that. And, yeah, I think it does fill a niche between the MMORPGs and uh, normal tabletop gaming. So, you know, it's good. It helps people keep together and uh, or get together and uh, get a game going on. Yeah, I absolutely approve of the, the you know, virtual tabletop. Uh, I have no qualms whatsoever about the concept at all. I, I think it's a nice leap forward that uh, brings people who are, you know, if they have some distance between them. Oh, that's not a reason for the game to not go on. Right on. Don Dutton. But yeah, about the, the Call of Cthulhu app, I kind of was aware of it, but it wasn't... I didn't really consider it a, like a full-on game. I, what we were talking about was an actual game like that was on platforms or a computer game where it was like the kind of immersive experience they were attempting at the, those early stages, but... I was totally unaware of that. I was excited to hear that they did something like that and that there was uh, enough popularity for that to translate into an app game. I, I didn't... Uh, being the curmudgeonly Clint Eastwood, you know, get off my lawn. 
uh, character that I am, uh, I was actually unaware that like they had made a Call of Cthulhu app game. I didn't even know. Yeah, it was a little splash in the pan. I mean, I'm not trying to downplay it. If you enjoyed it and got out a lot out of it, hey, good on you. I just... Cool. At that point in time, you know, smartphones weren't completely as immersive as they are now. So, but good on them for... Uh, <laughs> I myself am still not yet immersed at all. So. Oh, true. <laughs> so, yeah, well, you know, it's a thing. Uh, thanks for bringing it up because I certainly uh, didn't uh, find it worth mentioning. But that doesn't mean that uh, just because I didn't. That other people didn't enjoy it, so I'm glad you did bring that up to our attention. And uh, as far as covering the other stuff there, you know, I think 3rd Edition during that time did a lot to help get people back into gaming, but it didn't do a whole lot to get the ball rolling. They didn't provide a lot of uh, adventures. They were de developing stuff through uh, Dungeon Magazine and others to carry forth adventures, but... They also had that little published adventure. It started with the uh, series with the uh, Sunless Citadel. Return to a lot of series also came out. But I'm not really sure how much of that was really embraced because I played a few of them. But, uh, you know, I tended up to follow kind of my own thing as well as developing stuff from uh, Dungeon Magazine here and there. So that kept my campaign going for quite a while. But uh, I know there was a quite a lot of dead space in those times. But... Uh, all right, so thanks a lot, Joe. Or Jason, keep it coming up. And uh, speaking of Joe, Jade words, uh, we got another call in from Joe Richter from Hindsightless. Hindsightlessness. And thank you. And uh, yeah, he uh, has deigned to give us some of his wisdom. So take it away, Joe. What's going on, fellas? It's Joe. Uh, that was another fantastic episode. I'm calling in to um, kind of raise a point that you know, I understand that Watsies is the golden boy right now because they brought out 5th edition, but I don't think they get nearly enough blame for role-playing games being in the state that they were in the late 90s, early 2000s. They had basically given up on D&D and were investing so heavily into magic that they didn't really care what was going on with the role-playing games. Also, I'm not sure how bad role-playing games were doing back then. I realized sales were down, but if you think about it, the people that were actually saying that role-playing games were on the way out were people who were invested in seeing those games go out. It were people in the video game industry. All right, that's enough for me. Peace out. All right. Hey, uh, thanks a lot, Joe, for calling in. Um, well, I'm going to have to disagree with you about the Wizards thing. I think in the 90s and 2000s, we were primarily talking about, they brought out 3rd Edition, and that came in like a wrecking ball. They didn't uh, skimp on that at all. I, as a matter of fact, I think after about 2003, when they, uh, as Mike was just talking about here, after initial stumble, when they did 3.5, I think they got pretty well behind the product and promoted it well. Yeah, I've got to hand it to them. In spite of an initial fumble coming out of the gate, I, I don't think it was poorly invested in at all. I, they were putting a lot of money into Magic, but they were already making a lot of money from it. Uh, magic was one of those things that just really took care of itself. It just sold on its own merits. Uh, but they resuscitated uh, the D&D &D line with uh, new ownership under WOTC. Uh, and the third edition clearly had some glitches. 3.5 addressed those. But then followed this really long period of 
of years of material coming out and support material and online activity. So I can't say that they, they stopped investing. But if you're referring to the fourth edition era, uh, I am willing to bet that there were some bean counters in the mix that showed up and did not prioritize it. They just figured, you know, like, eh, we'll turn it into uh, D&D, the collectible card game, you know. M-O-R-P-G. We'll, we'll get rid of that pesky OGL, and, you know, we'll have total ownership of the end product, and uh, and streaming revenue, and, and yeah, it went straight to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, I, it went right down. Now, yeah. they would not mess with the goose that laid giant golden eggs, which is MTG. You know, they, yeah, they stuck with the formula. So if you're if you're talking about that later area, then yeah, I agree. Uh, they they dropped the ball and screwed up badly, and it wounded D and D pretty badly uh, as a pastime for years. Yeah, I would definitely say that Mike Merles tries to shy away anytime Fourth Edition is talked about uh, <laughs> because you know he was the guy with that, and maybe he was not the principal mover and shaker in that, but he was definitely responsible for the design of it. And I don't think. The game itself was terrible, but it just wasn't D&D, and it definitely tried to take it in a direction that just was un... It was inauthentic, and it was a little disingenuous, too, because, you know, nobody wants to be the DM, so we'll just make scenarios that run themselves as staged encounters in our Adventure League play, and boy, that was a stinker. Yeah. That, yeah, what, you're trying to do a role... MORPG-style role-playing game boss fight with... People who just build the most, most absurd characters with outlandish monsters and overpowered events. Okay. I mean, I get you that it sounds exciting on the surface, but in actuality, it doesn't play well when the DM doesn't do anything other than just read a narration card. Yeah, the random element is in accessing people's creativity. I mean, that's what makes D&D D&D is that like you're you're connecting to a live wire that is other people's imagination. And... Yeah, different DMs, different styles, different ideas, different players. Uh, it's such a huge creative pool that you get something different every single time. Yeah. Every single table, every single group, they're all unique in their own way. It's why you, you can't quite put a label on it. You know? Right. You can't capture this lightning in a bottle. Yeah, so you can't market it like that. But thank you, and uh, no uh, no offense. It was nothing personal, just a different... Uh take on ideas but uh thank you for giving us a a call in and uh, also just keep them coming man uh, let, we love you bro and uh we just want to hear more from you all the time so keep up the good work and we are going to sign out real quick to do a little paying of the bills and get into our main topic right on all right we're back and it's a dark and stormy night <laughs> it's a dark and stormy cliche. <laughs> and so with Spooked Over here, we're talking about horror films. That's right. Horror films and gaming and what and how they influence each other. And, well, I don't influence each other, but how they influence the role-playing game and the many of the classic spooky monsters, the werewolf, the mummy, the vampire, and all that. Oh, yeah. And, hey, if you... If you think for one moment that this isn't a two-way street of creativity, you're wrong. Oh. Yeah, it is actually a, a serious relationship uh, between authentic early attempts at horror movie making and the origins of D&D. We're actually going to 
we're we're gonna tie this knot together for you. We're gonna, we're gonna right. stitch the one to the other like a Frankensteinian monster. Oh, I like what you go with these <laughs> with the stitching imagery. Uh. <laughs> 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 Igor approves. Yeah. So, you know, we could start out with the Universal movies, and we will just give them a brief mention, not because of any distaste or dislike for them. I, I think that they're fine. For the time that they did what they did, you know, you could not show Dracula biting somebody. No, uh, the censorship laws were so intense um, that, like, you could have menacing scenes and shadows on walls, but you couldn't have any actual violence of almost any kind. I'd actually go a little bit farther back, but it's still obscure enough to Nosferatu. Yeah. I mean, because it's such an atmospheric film, but, you know, so few copies were seen that I think, just like some of the films Alexander Noveshki, there's so few people who have seen them before the 70s when they uh, re-released the film, so to speak, from the one remaining copy that was found, that it's not really worth mentioning because I seen I think a few people seen stills and some pictures, and it definitely influenced them because it's one hell of a creepy film. Oh, wonderfully creepy for the silent film era. Nosferatu, the original first vampire movie. Uh, and I'm not going to take anything away from Bela Lugosi and uh, Boris Karloff playing Frankenstein's monster. And of no, course, uh, no. Lon Chaney is the Wolfman. Oh, Although, classic. I think that Lon Chaney's Wolfman is a little tame. Just putting fur on the face, you know. But, you know, that's all—that's the limits that they had back then. You couldn't go the full howling treatment on them. No. Uh, horror meant something somewhat different if you roll the clock back far enough. Uh, scary had to be balanced against legal. Right. <laughs> there was a lot of things going on. And to be honest, some people were very freaked out by Frankenstein. Yeah, that, it was, you know... I, a different era, different sensibilities. Uh, the idea of like a corpse being brought back to life, stitched together parts of a bunch of dead people with, you know, you just drop a brain in there and voila, you made a people. That was very offensive to some people's sensibilities at the time. But so what we're going to focus on the films that I think primarily influenced a lot of people in the uh, early days of D&D, especially creative types, is the Hammer Horror films. And Hammer Horror had been around since the 30s. Uh, it got its name from a uh, comedy duo that uh, one of them went good and made his own studio, and he was known as uh, Hammer. And so, in the comedy duet, and so he uh, he named his studio after his old stage name. Yeah, it's his stage name, and they did musicals and uh, little cheap things and little tawdry murder mysteries. They were yeah. known to be a little edgy. But they, they were not known as a horror studio, studio originally. They were not thought of as, as being associated with that. They were just, uh, you know, your little indie group. Yeah. You know, your little outsiders doing their own kind of thing. Uh, they did have a film with Bella Lugosi, but it was more of a creepy murder mystery on a ship in the South Pacific. Yeah. So, you know, you had they had some elements in there. But one thing that they did was there was an X rating. In England. Now, it didn't mean pornography, although it could. Yeah, see, now, it, it's come to be associated with that now. Uh, you know, at this movie yet to be rated, and, like, the, the hated X rating uh, means that there's no way you can show this to family audiences. Uh, 
England had a slightly different system, and the, the X rating meant that there was material considered to be offense for questionable, which in that era could be practically anything. Uh, right. It, he didn't show the proper level of deference when saying hello. X! Boom! You know, it's just that's how ludicrous it was. So, you know, it's not to be mistaken as indicating these were particularly lurid movies. But they went ahead with a daring project. Although Universal had done Frankenstein, they decided to go with a new approach with the movie and make it color. And the first horror color movie was Curse of Frankenstein, released in 1957, starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Now, yeah. Peter Cushing was the doctor who comes off as this cold, callous bastard. And in many ways, is more of a monster than his creation, which isn't named it's just yeah the monster is you know <laughs> played by christopher lee in many respects the victim in all of this which i honestly think is a better interpretation of the text of mary shelley's book frankenstein is that uh, the doctor is the person whose actions were truly questionable uh, now they, they took it to somewhat of an extreme in the the film but uh, the idea is not lost on me. It, it yeah, they didn't watch the original oh, Universal threatened a lawsuit over it, so they didn't use anything like the crazy Tesla coil Frankenstein's laboratory that was famous in Universal. They went with a different take, but it was still, you were infusing it with some type of energy in a chemical bath or something like that. But Christopher Lee, a method actor as well, played a creature that was a stumbling almost marionette, jerkied motion rather than the hulking brute of Karloff, for, and not a flat-headed uh, guy with a bolt sticking out of his neck. <laughs> he was stitched together. He was horrific and grotesque. And audiences reacted to this. And Cushing's performance as a cold doctor, completely immersed in his research, this was the most important thing to him, made a mark on many people. And it was noticed. It made a lot of money. And also, it was in glorious color on the big screen. So all the gore, and they were not shy about using that X rating to show blood spilling out from wounds and grotesque yeah. body parts. Now, we, we think of that as nothing today. But at the time, of course, this was... That, in 1957 in England, was incredibly sensationalistic. I mean, this... Uh, you know, we watch... Uh, import movies from overseas that are 1970s with the, the blood pump working over time. <laughs> and, you know, just like literally everything is hosed off with the stuff. No, uh, circa 1957, this was shocking. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was a bit of an achievement and it certainly made an impression on people uh, as these films crossed the water and made it in the United States, too. Now, it is a, a tribute that Carlos... Uh, Flat-headed Frankenstein with the bolts is a more enduring character. Obviously, the uh, flesh golem bears more resemblance to Karloff, but it also is a certainty that the scars and stitches that were across it is also a little reminiscent of the Hammer Horror picture. So I think that the Hammer Horror, when they got started, we have to give a nod to Curse of Frankenstein. But really where the meat of the matter is, is we're going right to Dracula in 1958. Yeah, meat and potatoes here. We're down to the vampire movies. Oh, yeah. Christopher Lee as God Dracula. Now, he did not speak a whole lot in the movie. He had just a few lines. But that was because at Lee's insistence, Dracula does not deign to speak to the living. Yeah, I mean, who talks to their food? Uh, I mean, do you have a 
convincing conversation with Rutabaga? No, you do not. Uh, their characterization of Dracula was that he was completely aloof uh, and just barely... He acknowledges the existence of his food, but he doesn't deign to converse he, with He it. places no great value on yeah. them. They're all slaves or prey. Yeah, they're your happy meals that walk. <laughs> and his ability to mesmerize with his gaze was really brung forth. Now, Lugosi, now it's, we're going to go a little bit back to the universal. Lugosi also is attributed to a little bit of having that little battle of the wills with Van Helsing. This was picked up by Cushing and Lee together, where he tried to overpower him. And for a moment, you know, Lee, or as he's staring at Cushing, you know, Van Helsing is starting to lower his crucifix, but then reasserts himself. So, and also you get in here the theory that vampires are destroyed by daylight. And I think more than the Dracula novel, which Dracula was not powerless during day, he was not destroyed by daylight, but his powers were greatly diminished. He could not shape change. He lost a little bit of his uh, ability to tr uh, read minds and things like that, but he could still mesmerize, and he was still very strong. Yeah, that this was not like instantaneous doom. It was more like, you know, this is the weak hours. This is the time where a mortal man might stand a chance uh, against him, as opposed to at night when his powers are at full strength. Oh, it's hopeless. Don't even bother. <laughs> Your butt is so many kinds of kicked. <laughs> but no, from the you. Hammer Horror is where you get this daylight destroying vampires. And I mean, there are yeah. other myths and, and cultures that have that as well. But this is one where they really put it into the fore. And I think that the ability of the vampire to be stricken or destroyed during by a shaft of daylight owes a little bit, uh, excuse me, to the uh, 1958 Hammer Horror Dracula. Uh, it does, and remember, of course, that as these movies and more other more uh, variable movies involving very different themes uh, and very different creatures were hitting the screens, at that same time, the generation that a decade and a half later would be writing and designing most of the role-playing games. Uh, this was the stuff of their youth. Okay, this this were these were the things that were cultural influences upon them before the inception of role playing games. So yeah, it's a little part of the cultural zeitgeist going on that it, like you you go to the drive in movie theater uh, and you know catch the late night screening double feature uh, <laughs> special monsters and this was ordinary life. So these things were filtering their way into the background of the American and British mind uh, all the while. And not too much later, uh, you would begin to see all of these things cropping their way up in role-playing game lore. Uh, they would be reflected and included because it was also part of the uh, the culture of imagination, science fiction, fantasy fiction, mm -hmm. fantastic monsters, and the brave people who fight to stop them. Yeah, and also uh, we'd be remiss, click, click, uh, if we didn't mention The Mummy in 1959, which, again, Lee plays the uh, the priest of Karnak. Yeah, and... The Mummy, a classic D&D &D monster with yeah. a predecessor in the terrific films, multiple terrific films. That initial scene where he's in the tomb with the initial explorer and lurches out to kill him as a mummy, 
Wow, that was, to me, when I first saw that, that was pretty intense. And I'm not trying to say that I was innocent or shielded. I'd seen other monster movies, but I was like, I really kind of felt I was feeling a dread. And maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm really emphatic. But watching that on the color TV downstairs, I was a little creeped out by that. And I was really inspired. Like, next time I run a and d game, I totally I don't want to do a mummy scene like that. Just silent. The mummy. There was no sound other than, you know, just the slight shuffle and the intrepid explorer, you know, left behind to study these ancient runes and hieroglyphs. And something's creeping up on him. To kill him. Never leave the mage alone to inspect the tomb. You know, like, in fact, don't even split up the party. (laughs) But this stuff is why. (laughs) Right. And so that was a good scene. And I would uh, implore anybody to watch it just if you want to run a mummy. Uh, The rest of it's standard. Pretty much, you know, the mummy dies and. Trying to get his love, but... Let's throw in another 1950s one. Let's uh, throw in uh, Creature of the Black Lagoon for its okay, fantastic right. and I'll, Yeah, before we get too far out, the 1954 American yeah. films, um, they asked a Navy diver to put on this rubber suit. Because he's used to it and can move around in it. Right, and they made a movie that was uh, just a creature feature. Yeah. But the creature was so shocking... So lurid, even a black and white, the audiences were warned before <laughs> that no one will be seated during the appearance of the creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> they had to actually do that. I'm not making it up because some people would run out of the theater at the sight of the thing. And so we all know that we're talking about the creature from Black Lagoon. It doesn't have a real name. It's sort of like a throwback amphibian. Even if you want to throw this in there, I love Craftian type deep one thing. Yeah. A leftover. And it's clawed, webbed hands and lurid gills and fanged maw. It was a horrific, and large eyes, it was a horrific creature to look at. And it is still to this day thought of as the perennial weird monster movie. Yeah. You know, it doesn't fit the classical mythology, okay? Right. Uh, The werewolf, the vampire, the mummy, these are things that, like, have antecedents in all kinds of lore from around the world. The creature from the Black Lagoon was a moment of creativity, a little spin on, you know, uh, things in its own unique way, Uh, but it created, whole cloth, a brand new monster, which then... You know, now we look at role-playing games and there's weird stuff in the waters and things that, you know, well, Sahaukin and Lokathoth and uh, all of these weird, creepy creatures that crawl out of the deep and menace the shore dwellers. Uh, Again, thank you, films of the 1950s, for putting that notion in people's minds and then it translating into game and the... enduring legacy of the creature of the black lagoon all right and you know just the name alone was kind of creepy at the time so going back right back to uh, hammer horror i want to talk about the curse of the werewolf on this one now yeah. not that it has leer cushing has Ow! but their take on the werewolf was a curse not by a bite but by a victim of tragedy circumstance of birth and of course the taste the first taste of blood in the hunt triggering the transformation yeah that this was a thing that in theory could happen to a wide variety of people not not inflicted upon them through a bite which became the popular lore uh later mm-hmm. uh, or well that goes to the lawn chain yeah. the, oh. the old lore being that it's a curse passed by contact with same you know be it scratch or bite or what have you uh, oh, man. 
But this was a very different look at the the werewolf, the the idea that the potential lurked in anyone's background under the right circumstances. Yeah, you know, that it it could be something that was brought out uh, by sufficient tragedy and the the right timing of the. If you were born under the right stars and subjected to the correct torments and, uh, well, it could be you. So there's a certain something there to make people connect to it. I, and I like that take, and I just thought it was worth bringing up because they did something different. Of course, the silver bullet melted down from the cross or the crucifix of an archbishop was used to slay him, which Pow! was also kind of cool how they gathered that. Yeah, the silver bullet, you know. It wasn't just silver. It was silver from a crucifix blessed by the archbishop. Yeah, blessed silver. You know, not which if you... I just take a couple silver pieces and bang them around my uh, arrowheads. How's that? <laughs> okay, yeah, that works. All right, fair enough. Uh, but no, there was a, a unique sensibility to those. Um, but now we're going to move forward a little bit. Now we... We love the Hammer Horror films, and maybe you can say, well, the tenuous link between gaming and their influence in culture could be nominal. Yeah, we're not saying that gaming would not exist without these things. Right. That's not that kind of connection. This is not a parental connection. This is like a, a elder cousin. It's a background noise, noise of the universe. Little elder cousin, okay, where, you know, sure, uh, these aren't the principal influences. These aren't the, like... Uh, primary heritage, uh, but they were assorted influences that also happened to be happening at the time that the original authors were, you know, younger people. Uh, and it, it was part of the human experience at that time in that era. So most of the people who did the early writing for these games, uh, this was part of their upbringing. It was part of their life. It was the stuff that their friends talked about. Right. It was their water cooler moment. It was also a background noise that was constantly in that culture with Creepy Magazine or Tales from the Crypt. Oh, yeah, we love those. Uh, Tales from the Crypt with the Crypt Keeper. Oh, the yeah. The coolest lich ever. <laughs> All right, so... You know he keeps, like, cognac in his phylactery. Yeah, he sure does. Um, He has to. Anyway, we're going to move to one of my personal favorites. Night... Of the Living Dead. George Romero's Black and White, 1968, because it was cheaper to film it in black and white than yes. it was to do color. Uh, but this is the origin of what we think of as the zombie flick. The, yeah. The, the dead walk. Ah! There's no explanation given. There's kind of some alluding that there's a, it's brought on by madness, or perhaps there was a radioactive spill. They're not really sure. But more... Inherently, it got kind of set that it was an outbreak of a plague. Yeah, the slow, shambling dead rising up out of the earth, uh, not very well controlled. You know, they're not incredibly dexterous. Absolutely uh, not. Yeah, they're, they, they're mindless. They don't move fast. Uh, they but don't they, plan, but they show up in numbers and they don't quit. <laughs> they're attracted to noise of the living, to lights. The familiar sounds that they once had. There's a whole exploration of that. And of course we have the Walking Dead. Which has just taken that to the absolute extreme. And done masterfully. But at the same time. The origin. The Patient Zero. We have to give an homage to the Living Dead. Because everything that is in zombie apocalypse horror. is Was in that movie. Everything. 
Either doubt me? Okay. The little girl rising up in the bottom uh, was bit by a vampire, or a vampire, a zombie. And they didn't know that, of course, it was, as they're listening to the TV, they're saying that beware of anyone bit. Yeah, at this point it has not dawned on them that it is communicable. At first it seems like just a thing that happened. That they're wandering maniacs just killing people and eating their flesh. Now later we get brains, but brains is also something that affects them and hitting them in the head incapacitates them much quicker than just shooting their bodies full of holes. But the mythos of the zombie, you know, arose out of the horror movie and it was certainly unquestionably included in D&D. The classic undead archetypes include the zombie and, of course, the vampire. Yeah, there was like uh, two minutes of that film that was censored from the theaters because it was just too graphic. Mm. Them eating the flesh. Oh. Tearing into that. Um, yeah, that was uh, those days. Which it doesn't seem like so much to us now, but, you know. Oh, yeah, nowadays, like, okay, well, they've just totally ripped open the corpse and devoured him alive while he's still screaming. Oh, <laughs> that's quaint. Yeah, uh, 45 minutes of lavish shots, uh, you know, wasted on nothing but the eating of entrails. You know, it, that would, yeah, you could make, I'm pretty sure uh, <laughs> Rob Zombie has made, you know, like an hour and a half film of just that. Well, holy cats. <laughs> With I no intro. <laughs> I just say that in The Walking Dead, Negan braining people with uh, Lucille uh, well, was, all right, yeah, that, was way over the top of anything else I've seen in that series. So. Yeah, they, they really pushed the envelope as far as they could uh, so far. But that's fact, what horror they, film does. They, they did finally reach that point where people backlashed a little. But uh, yeah, uh, these were other films that had this profound impact, uh, that had this level of popularity. Uh, enough so to become cult status, uh, legendary films. And, you know, do not think for a minute that uh, D&D happened in a vacuum. The, the people who did most of that early writing, they did not live as hermits. They they were part of that, you know, culture and time period. So, right, so we're going to talk about two other Hammer Horror films, and then I think we're going to close the book on Hammer Horror. The Creeping Flesh with... Uh, both Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, but uh, this time in alternate roles, not necessarily as uh, opponents per se, although they are adversarial in nature. The Creeping Flesh takes place in Victorian uh, England, where in New Guinea there's this strange stone crypt with this enormous, almost monstrous skeleton, and it's thought as some type of troglodyte man. But during its exploration, they find out that uh, he removes the finger. Uh, Peter Cushing is the doctor. He removes the finger, immerses it in liquid, and it begins to grow flesh. This horrid, translucent yellow flesh with blackish-blue veins. And they then realize that if this thing comes into contact with water, it will grow flesh and become reanimate that it is some type of precursor, perhaps a biblical curse of the Nephilim, uh, perhaps some kind of monstrous creature that was overcome by humans and locked away. They don't know, but there are other ones being discovered even now. And so <laughs> the horror comes is that um, between the two characters that uh, finally they transport the body or the corpse of this creature and it falls out in a rainstorm. <laughs> and it doffs this huge cloak. This with red lining conveniently left by the carriage keeper. And it finds uh, Christopher or Peter Cushing and chops, bites his finger off. 
the one that he had taken from it. Oh. And it's this ghoulish creature. Just You'll have to see it. Trust me. You'll enjoy the movie. It's well acted by both uh, Lee and Cushing. And uh, it's very reminiscent of some of the best stuff that Hammer could do. And it is 74, not 73? Yeah, 73. It's 1973, so when it came out... Um, Hammer Horror was starting to struggle now, and uh, they hoped that this movie would do well, but it didn't. So that brings us to us. Next one was Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. Now, this is probably one of the weirder ones because they tried to take a an idea and a concept of what they did well with the Dracula movies. So they wanted to create a swashbuckling monster hunter with a hunchback companion as a uh, twist. Usually the misshapen hunchback is the assistant of a fiendish madman or doctor or uh, a monstrous vampire. But in this case, he's helping. And yeah, the trustworthy right-hand person that, you know, uh, is capable in their own right and well-intentioned. Which, nice break from form. I like that. Yeah, and Captain Kronos is a swashbuckler cavalryman who they have spent their entire time fighting vampires. And it's alluded that Cronus's bride was killed by a vampire, and, you know, now they swore their entire lives to the eradication of them. And, you know, they mentioned during the movie amongst themselves when other people like, what do you mean this is a different type of vampire? There are more of them, and, you know, the uh, Captain Cronus says there is many type of vampires as there are diverse forms of birds. <laughs> you know, and... The immediate implication was that the differing uh, cultural traditions and mythologies that uh, other countries had about vampiric-type spirits, uh, you know, they were giving a little acknowledgement to that, which yeah. also opens the door to their actual plan, which was to follow up with making a series of these more intended for a television show so that they could have the writing open to different Yeah, they were types. going to diversify it into a movie series, like kind of like the different Bond powers, franchise. Different abilities, you know, like this one, you know, does this or has these habits, and this one can only be killed like this. Uh, obviously, that took place genre-wide, where people widely varied the way in which vampires can be defeated. But, yeah, they, they already were forward-thinking, uh, unfortunately, uh, the company this, did not make it. Yeah, know. they pulled it up before it could get doing uh, doing well. And this movie did do well, but the they were already, a down, already in a downward spiral. Now, as we talk about movies, we're going to talk about TV shows. And I think we would, again, be remiss if we didn't mention Kolchak, The Night Stalker, with, starring Darren McGavin. Oh, just the perfect guy for the job. He just... He had a kind of earthy, ordinary fella. Like, he looked like the guy who worked at the used car lot. <laughs> yeah. uh, or sold insurance, you know. Uh, and, you know, traveling salesman. He wore that straw topper. Yeah, the and, hat and uh, yeah, a coat that seemed pretty, you know, off the rack. Uh, he was not your archetypal superhero, okay? He was he not... He was not, as our cat buster has now decided that uh, he needs to be part of this podcast. Our, <laughs> so, he, so he had to get him off the table. One of the familiars has ah. escaped from the lab. No. Uh, Kolchak the Night Stalker uh, pitted this ordinary guy with a penchant for the investigation of strange things. Working for a lurid news, tabloid newspaper. Yeah, crappiest tabloid in town. Uh, and the irony is that although they employ him because he comes up with these wacky stories, 
Uh, he's a guy who's searching for truth, and they're the only outlet to let him publish. Uh, and nobody takes him seriously. Yeah, and he encounters all kinds of creatures from things in the uh, tunnels underneath uh, government research uh, institutions to all sorts of craziness, including aliens and even an android. Yeah, but this most... was the X-Files solo style long before there was an X-Files. Uh, but more to the point, this also had a similar creature, a familiar creature to many D&D players, the Rakshasa. And they featured Vishnu, blessed crossbow bolts, and a uh, Hindu priest that was here to slay this monster who had come to America that took the forms of its victim's most favored friends so it could get close. Loved ones. Yeah, this is also worth mentioning that uh, you know the tradition of the blessed crossbow bolt uh, appears in D&D, in the Monster Manual from the first edition of Dungeons & Dragons. That is a direct... Right, they're quote. taking from the culture of Hindu, of these demonic creatures, the Rakshasa. And this one was a little bit mindless. It wasn't, uh, it, it was cunning, but more like a tiger. Yeah, it, it did not have a lot of personality to it. Not a lot of deep plans, not a lot of uh, schemes. It was really about get close to the prey, kill, and get away. But Gygax did mention that he watched that and decided to, after seeing that episode, to include that into the mythos. And so, there it is. And the Rakshasa is with us this day. Ode to a TV show called, quirky TV show that was on for two seasons. Uh, CBS did can it. It had uh, good reviews and all that. But it was at late night and it was just at that quirky time. Uh, but, it's, it's ascended to cult status. Yeah. I, I actually... I, even having looked back at it years later, uh, I still think Kolchak the Night Stalker stands up well as a, I do too. as uh, the precursor to uh, X Files and other such shows, yeah. Supernatural and, and things of that uh -huh. ilk. Uh, they all owe a nod to Kolchak the Night Stalker because you really did not see anything quite like that before Kolchak. And yep. you had weird but not quite like the investigative path into weird monsters. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of creatures that would later be kind of featured. Of course, the greatest creature feature of all times is Alien. Oh, well, yeah. You know, yeah. you can say yeah. that it's a science fiction movie, <laughs> but it's still, okay, I know that everybody's already going to know where I'm going to go with this. Yes, it is a haunted house in space. But that creature feature, just like the black creature of the Black Lagoon. Now, unlike the others, it does not predate D&D, but it does meet the, the classic genre type of, like, monster movie scarathon. Because, boy, oh boy, uh, look, there are some scenes in Alien that just, you know... And if, you're, if you didn't jumpstart a little uh, <laughs> when that chest burster came out... Uh, it, then you're made of sterner stuff than me. I was actually more scared. I think I pooped a little. <laughs> I I was more scared when I, I only saw it on cable TV. I couldn't see it in the theaters. But I actually I actually was more scared during when that egg opened up. Oh yeah, because the the less than subtle menace. I mean, it just slowly flowered open, and you knew nothing good uh, is would, happening you, you get here. Get away! Get away! Get away! Get away! You know, every instinct is like to tell poor John Hurt, get 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 out of go go get dude. Get. Dude, run for it now! Get. Do you have no instincts at all? Are you just literally made of curiosity? <laughs> literally. But again, every <laughs> science fiction game has included a type of xenomorph. And 
you know what? That's a thing that I think is influential influential all its own, and it's due to horror. Good point. Good point. Uh, the science fiction games came a little bit behind the heels of the fantasy fiction games. And so, you know, you, you get a slightly later relevant date for uh, science fiction movies that had a profound influence on science fiction gaming. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I, I'll hand it that. Uh, that's the only one I wanted to kind of end it up with, but... Uh, no, that's a good one. Well, thank you. I think that... Uh, I had not thought to include that, because I, I was really looking at influences that, you know, you go back prior to 1975 and the kind of formalization mm-hmm. and solidification of D&D. Uh, and yeah, they were looking for monsters to add in, all kinds of sources. And, of course, you would be remiss if you didn't have werewolves in there. Of course you would. Yeah, you, you have to. Uh, but they also... You know, Along expanded. with whites and race, oh yeah, and, uh, and zombies, of course. But you know, because who doesn't love a good zombie? The old-fashioned flesh-eating ghoul. Yep, we've had a lot of undead, and of course, the other. Ra- this isn't a horror movie, but the Seven Voyages of Sinbad is that was the one. Oh yeah, no, Jason the, and the Argonauts, and uh, well, that's the, the Ray Harryhausen film. Yeah, that was it. Uh, with their fantastic nature and their their strange monsters. And the limitations of claymation, so to speak, uh, and like stop motion animation, the limitations were certainly present. And so the films are kind of considered crude by today's standards. But nobody else was even attempting stuff this out there. Uh, Yeah, planting the teeth of the Hydra into the ground and calling forth the skeleton. So the skeleton, you know, that's set right. That's burned hard into the imagination of gamers. Yeah, these were, you know thrill movies, uh, and they were not highly regarded yeah. as cinematic releases, but they achieved a kind of cult status, and they too uh, got folded into the mythoses that were picked up for D&D, that were added into the tomes. Uh, and it is a game of adaption and borrowing mm-hmm. and creativity that draws from a lot of the same wells, and still does. Uh, whatever, you know, anything new that crops up uh, you'll see a lot of people borrowing from their favorite anime now. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to be incorporated into their game plot. Uh, this is what their big boss fight is going to be. Or, you know, the the thread of the plot is based on this video game that I liked. Uh, that process is still happening even today, just as it was then. So in many respects, no matter how different the game may seem in some respects, the traditions that really make it what it is, are still going strong. So I am not displeased at all. All right, so we're going to keep coming at you with some horror themes all through this month, up until Halloween, of course. Um, I think, wait a minute, just a second here. Well, Halloween falls on a Thursday, so we'll probably be doing our final one on Tuesday. Ah, we'll take a little Halloween break. Yeah, so we'll do that one. So, anyway. It's hard to do a podcast when we're out haunting the night, uh, <laughs> feasting upon the souls of the innocent. <laughs> or at least getting free candy. We call that game night. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, I think we've wrapped this subject up pretty well and uh, put it to bed. So, if you have any comments or questions I, I or think, things you missed, you I think, think we, we bolo punched it in the nads. We sure did. <laughs> So we appreciate you listening in. Tell us what you think. Of course, you can get hold of us on the Anchor app or on our Facebook page, The Dice is Screaming. And of course, you can get hold of us on Twitter if you're so inclined at D-E- me at D E T H A N D Gaming. 
<laughs> and in my case, uh, mutter into a crudely drawn pentagram uh, at V-O-X-M-A-G-I. Ah, at Vox Magi on Twitter. Yeah, so just add us. And, of course, uh, you can like us on the Facebook page. We'll add you there. And, of course, just keep the comments coming to the Ink Wrap, and we appreciate all your fine feedback and comments. We do. And uh, we will hope to hear from you soon. So, until then, may, may the, the dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya. <laughs>